Uh, welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to the very popular account Eager Monetism. Uh, hi, nice to have you here. Hi, uh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here as well. So, uh, my first question to you is: It's a sort of a broad question that, that's been running in my mind for now. Should economists be um, like Keynes d- described, like dentists, people solving small problems without ideology, uh, being technically oriented, or should they be what many um, many of the great economists, Keynes himself, have been, which is uh, building big picture theories and uh, drawing conclusions from what may or may not be um, very reliable data? Well. I think that's a really interesting question. I think that, uh, well, I think you can't have just one. You can't have uh, econ- economics that's just, I'm going to say like very informed, but opinions. So you can't have like a, a discipline that is all grand questions, grand plans and grand visions, because I think that's not really something that you can they can do much rigorous work on, but I also think that it wouldn't be a very interesting or very compelling field if it was just like, oh, this little regulation, this little tax, this little incentive. I think you you need to have both. You need to have like a big vision of what the economy should look like, but you also need to do, I'm going to say like dedicated problem solving into what into various areas i think that uh, for example uh, development economics is a field that has like a big a, a bit of a, of an interesting uh, dynamic here because you you can have like a, i don't know arcts and other various uh, studies into which specific interventions in matters of aid, government policy, can generate good outcomes. Like you can have, a, I don't know, give a bag of lentils and, and incentivize vaccination. But it can't really tell you like what kind of, like should the central bank be independent or not? I, I don't think you can build the development of a nation by, by doing like these little targeted programs, even though they, Seem you to can't have a very small randomized control trial. Yeah, basically, like they, they. I think they're very useful. I think they're a, a great tool to have, and well, I feel that agrees because uh, the flow and Banerjee and Kramer got the Nobel Prize, which I think was okay. I deserved or correctly awarded. And I think that uh, you need to build on like both tracks here. You need to build like. Uh, a more very, I, I think that a lot of people might think that I'm saying that there's theory and there's empiric, empirical work, but I don't think it's the same distinction. Like you, you couldn't have an economics that was just like all theory and all grand theories and grand visions, but zero data and you couldn't build one that was, uh, because it wouldn't make sense. Like you, 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 you will have like 19th century economics, but in the present, and that had glaring problems in explaining right. reality. So, uh, um, no, no. 
sorry. You're saying something? No, no, I I sort of tracked off. Yeah. So in 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 some sense, I mean, a joke I was gonna make is that I take it you're not you're not a fan of Austrian economics, but um more seriously, you write a lot on your uh, Substack some unpleasant uh, arithmetic. Um, what is it that that writing economics has taught you, which uh, which uh, reading and tweeting had not? I think that the the most important thing I learned from writing was uh, about clarity and about what explaining what I mean and what I think about a, a subject more uh, in more detail with more clarity and with more rigor. I because I think that a lot of uh, well, re- a lot of what is about reading and tweets they don't they can't they aren't really about like especially to there and about like conveying information in a anywhere near an orderly manner. Like I could say, I don't know, in, I could tweet out inflation and then like, it's just like a, a little snack and <laughs> the difference here is like it's preparing a meal. I think that would be a good analogy. And it, it also gave me a really good experience researching topics and subjects and trying to because I think that the most important thing there is that you can't really find uh, the most important skill there is the uh, discerning between uh, sources that are uh, good and reliable and somewhat mainstream and sources that are like fringe and less a lower quality. Right. I mean, I've always felt that there are two kinds of fringe sources. Like an example I'd use is that uh, Scott Sumner was, at least in 2009, a fringe, non-mainstream source. But I'm pretty sure our favorite monetary cranks, who, whoever they are, who believe that one small thing can change the, the world, even those are uh, fringe, uh, non-mainstream sources. So how do you go about differentiating between the good fringe sources and the bad fringe sources? Well, I think that is there something that's really... Something that's really interesting is that like there's a lot of people who say things that are very like outside the mainstream of economics. Okay. Well, but, but and I think that the the interesting thing is like, what are they saying? Is it like something that's really well well expressed and well put together and something that's like interesting to engage with, or sometimes it's just like very disorderly punditry to put it somehow <laughs> and I think that's like a very initial way to to think about it mm-hmm. and you you got you got I think that uh, a good things about a good thing about economics and a good thing about basically all scientific fields is that even if you're like an outsider that's saying things that are like really different from the mainstream if you're saying like things that can be tested with the methods of the field and with that can be like that can interact with other parts. Uh, I think that you can have uh, that they can, that it's something that eventually someone, uh, people in the field, other people in the field will engage with. So for example, you can have uh, something that like market monetarism, which is like a very, various a set of ideas that's different from the mainstream, Based out central banking, out how central banks should target nominal income and not prices. Mm-hmm. 
towards right. somehow. And well, that's an, an, an a viewpoint to, to call it a viewpoint that you can engage with very constructively and that you can say like, well, this would be the trade-offs, this, this would be the problems. And then you can have something like more monetary theory, which can also be engaged with uh, engage with in the same manner, but then you start running into major limitations. Like you start asking questions like, what's the role interest rates right. play in MT? What's the role? Uh, uh, what do they think causes inflation? What's the role of taxes? And that's those are questions that are like really underdeveloped, but right. not in ways that are like symptomatic of of well. The, it's just a theory that takes like certain ways and twists them around. It's like if they, if there was like a very precise theory of, or a or a more broad outline of what taxes or interest or whatever does in MP, then uh, the theory wouldn't work the way it does, and it would have different conclusions. I'm I'm going on a completely different track here. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So um, you're in Argentina, where the politics is, I might say, exciting. You follow German politics a lot. Um, a common argument I've heard about German politics is that it's boring, because the because the main parties basically um, they they don't have large disagreements the way you might find in in the U.S. or in India. Uh, do you think that uh, a country having more interesting politics to watch is bad for economic growth? Well, I think that uh, well, I think that there is a difference between what like an economist or an expert would would think about politics being interesting and what a regular person would think. Like, right. if you are an expert in water policy, then the only disagreement between the parties being like water would be really interesting but it would be extremely boring to everyone else <laughs> yeah and well I think that uh, I think that a lot of people uh, think that having consensus in in politics like having a lot of consensus is is something that is inherently good or bad like very centrist people or think that I think that there's a lot of things that should be consensus, like democracy or whatever. But I think that uh, a lot of people like assign uh, a value to consensus that it doesn't really have. Okay. Like if you say uh, political parties should have more consensus or more bipartisanship, like they call it in the US, we say consensus here, but. Right. I think that uh, it depends on what the consensus or what the bipartisanship or what the collaboration is. Mm -hmm. Like Sherman politics is really stable and I think that it it makes it a bit boring because it's like, well, the CDU believes in like a slightly right of center, slight, uh, very <laughs> vague, shadowy uh, politics and the, and the Social Democratic Party believes in a vaguely left of center, shall we vague uh, politics. But I also think that having like really intense politics with intense disagreements is, it can be a sign that things are going like really badly. Like the US had very stable politics, 
in, I don't know, the 90s, and it has really volatile and divisive politics now. And I don't, and I don't think you can really say that politics in the US are better than they were 20 years ago, but I don't, also don't think that you can say that it's a different phenomenon. Okay. Like uh, the 90s were a better time in a better time for politics, but they were also a worse one. If you say like, well, the Democrats weren't very eager to to stand up to the to Republicans in a series of, of subjects or weren't really willing to take their own position into it. Mm-hmm. So like they wouldn't say like, oh yeah, we're the party of gay rights or we are going to fight really hard for welfare. Right. Like that's something like if you have a, a lot of consensus within the parties, it can be because like there's a lot of agreement into what uh, into what are the fundamental building stones of like political society. Okay. Or it can be because no one is uh, is willing to bring up uh, things that might upset the other side, and I think that the latter is a pro is more a problem than it's a. And then the first case of an actual good consensus. Well, a lot of countries build like a political consensus. It's especially not worth in Latin America. Uh, like okay. the role central banks have to play. Like mm-hmm. Latin America have huge problems with government spending and taxes and right. all manner of weird pol- uh, policies in uh, in the 70s and 60s, and that led, led to really high inflation. And then after the 90s, I, uh, there were a lot of changes to the economy and one big consensus that, well, outside of Venezuela and Argentina has remained is that like central banks are the main, like the main authority over price stability and that they're not like really a part of the political government that you would call you, like the president of a central bank isn't really like the treasury secretary or the trade secretary. So central bank independence has become something that there is consensus on in Latin American politics. And that's like a good development. Okay, um, speaking on that, um, I read a book and it's a, a, a a long time ago. I, I, I forgot the book's title. It was this very old NBER publication. But um, my my only question was, why did voters in these countries keep electing such, to pardon the word, but despots? Uh, clearly, shouldn't there, shouldn't there have been some feedback mechanism where people see that that, that, that such policies were, were leading to um, hyperinflation, defaults, high interest rates, and all the problems that are associated with, uh, with such populist governments. Why, what is the political economy of this? That's a really complicated question. It's something that like people have built entire careers on, but I'll <laughs> do my best. I think that, uh, well, firstly, there's a delay between the, poli- the policies and the, and the effects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have like really big government spending programs and really big, especially monetary expansion, and the two are often tied. So the central bank is just financing the government by printing the money. Okay. You have like a year or a, or a year or two between like the gold parts 
and developed parts. And because politics in Latin America were, was so unstable, then, uh, uh, well, as I was saying, there's a, a, a difference in time between uh, when when the, poly the economic policies uh, happen and when their consequence happens. So if you had like a really big spending program and you had a really big uh, inflation rate, there was enough time in, in the middle that people might attribute it to something, to something else. Yeah. And there was a re and there and because politics was so volatile and unstable, I think that that transmission between a very populist leader does a thing and consequences of that thing happen when the populist leader was no longer in power. And obviously, a lot of these uh, like populist tyrants were like dictators, mm. and basically. And and were like very authoritarian, so like there wasn't much of a point in in that. But I think that the the political instability was really one of the reasons, uh, one of the main reasons why voters rewarded a certain type of of policy. Of policy was because like no, because they they wouldn't like they wouldn't have a really clear understanding if of what the dynamics were. And I think that they're, because the politics was so unstable in Latin America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, there also wasn't much of an incentive for like any prudence whatsoever by, by governments. Like you had to get in and you had to like please as many people as you can, like keep as many balls in the air and the, the most the easiest way to to keep competing interests in line is to give them money right. like i think there there's talk about new york city in the 70s like suddenly uh, politicians and especially the democratic party lost a lot of their their power so they started getting like all these demands from like from unions and from the police mm. and from teachers and from public workers and because that they didn't have a lot of power, they, there was no one that could say like, no, this is enough, we're not going to do this anymore. Okay. And because there wasn't like a, someone to, well, the, the expression is someone like to, to take away the punch from the central banks, but there wasn't someone to, to put a stop to all the demands, they just kept spending money and went bankrupt. And a similar dynamic might, might go on because the, because political leaders were so weak, they were like threatened by the military and threatened by foreign coups and by the opposition and civil wars and terrorists and militias. They said like, we're going to just spend as much money as possible to stay in power because it's very likely that when it's late enough for some of, of the problems to appear, I'll just be out of office and I'll just not have to to deal with with any of the fallout. Okay. I mean, one way of just saying is that they didn't have the confidence they'd stay in power, and so they kept uh, doling out money till the, uh, with the with the assumption that giving the money would keep them in power, but they lost power anyways, and somebody else had to clean up the mess. And typically, the clean up the, the people who were cleaning up the mess um, 
ended up embracing what was called and what is called the Washington Consensus. It's been tried a couple of times in, uh, not couple, maybe like five or six times in Latin America, a few times in Southeast Asia. Uh, do you think it's a good post-reform model, not as, as a growth model, but after a financial crisis, do you think uh, the IMF's suggestions of austerity and and uh, cent- and dollarization sometimes or cutting the money supply and reducing deficits, uh, is that a good idea? Well, I think that uh, the touch general program, when you have like a really high high inflation rate and when you have many of the problems that Latin America has, it okay. can be good, it can, but I think you also have to look at the, the specifics, right? So if you okay. have like the IMF says, we need to do austerity. Sometimes the way governments, especially in Argentina, do austerity is like raise a lot of taxes that are like really unproductive for the economy okay. and cut like important uh, spending projects like in education or healthcare. So the IMF would say like, and for example, the 90s reform plan in Argentina, which was flawed in many ways, but one of the things, the reasons the IMF didn't support it was because they they slashed export taxes and export taxes were like 30% of government revenue. So the IMF would say like, no, we're going to go bankrupt. You're not going to be able to afford uh, so much spending and then the government just did it and it worked and it exports increased a lot mm-hmm. um, so like you have to actually look at what is being proposed because sometimes I think that one of the reasons I think that the IMF programs aren't very successful is because like a lot of people just focus on like the numbers, the figures, the the result, the outcomes are not in how they're being achieved. So if you say like we're going to close the deficit by uh, by spending less money on like ridiculous infrastructure projects that serve no no purpose, and we're going to raise taxes on like I don't know, we're going to raise uh, taxes progressively, so to speak then you're going to see all the results. If you say like, we're going to slash education and we're going to increase uh, corporate taxes to 70%, that would have the same outcome, but it obviously has different results in the economy. Right, yeah, got it. Um, are you skeptical of this Of this sort of, I would say there's a species of, of economists who fly from country to country and promise to solve to give the one two cure to their problems. Are you skeptical of this um, of this species? Then I'm well. I'm mostly skeptical because, like, if you go, if you're like a guru of sorts that goes like to Bolivia, to Nigeria, to Myanmar, to Kazakhstan, giving like, the exact same advice. I think that's a, a bit like. That's something you have to like raise an eyebrow and go, hmm, okay. because like you can't really meaningfully say we need to lower taxes in every single country or we need to spend more on, mm-hmm. on infrastructure in every single country. But I think that there's like, I think that I am skeptical of like the celebrity economist policy guru, not because like their advice is bad, but because I think that if you give always the same advice, then uh, you're very liable to like, oh, but that wasn't 
the real Washington Mercedes <laughs> or real development state or real whatever. It wasn't too socialist. Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't true socialism, but for yeah, whatever the hell Jeffrey Sachs is promising <laughs> because he went through like two. He was exactly what I was thinking of because he went to very to through two very distinct phases of like economic policy guru, one like in mm. big pro-market reforms like mm. shock policy in the 80s and 90s and one in for like a big push a big pushes of government investment in africa in the 2000s right i mean okay um among the class of people you and i interact with on twitter what is the most underrated economic concept Everybody knows the basic supply, demand, opportunity, cost, uh, ADAS. But what's the most? I mean, among all the economic concepts you know of, what's the one that's that's the most forgotten in daily discussion? Well, I think that there's like two groups of people that forget two very different concepts. From like okay. more left-leaning people, I think that people tend to forget about. Uh, I don't have like a name for this, so I'll just say like, no, not incentives precisely, but like uh, this tax uh, distortion. So if you do something, people might change their behavior in ways that like go against what you're doing. So if you raise taxes, people work less. Like this isn't empirically true, but like for instance, uh, the corporate uh, rate is frequently flat because like if you have different levels then companies tend to like stay and stagnate at the lower level like right i think in france you can see like a really big drop in the number of companies that have 49 employees versus 50 right, because right, right. companies with 50 employees have pay much higher taxes that's the thing in india too with labor regulation but what about the rest of, what about the other group of people? Well, I think that a lot of people forget that like, you don't have to accomplish everything with a single policy. Okay. Like a lot of people who call for the table. Like say, we need uh, to have free college or college that is, uh, or forgive people's college, college debts. I think that a lot of people want like the forgiveness itself to, to be progressed, to be progressive even because it, and just raise taxes on people that are not that rich okay. a little bit and that would like pay for itself and cancel out the, the regressive parts. Okay. And I, I think that like a lot of people who propose like very aggressive means testing of welfare programs sort okay. of like do a little like dance that's a, okay. that well, away from Called the they will like, pay for them. It's called the they will yeah. pay for themselves. Like, yeah, yeah, like, uh, like people who don't deserve something will get it. And I think that like, there's like in basic statistics you have like type one error, which is like a false positive, and type two, uh -huh. which is like a false negative. It was the other way around, but you have false positive and false negative. And I think that the seriousness of a false positive in welfare to call someone like someone who doesn't deserve a, a program, like who is too well off and gets free money anyways, getting it is much less serious than the false negative, like someone who does need government assistance, not getting right. it. 
Okay. Um, a problem I've seen is that of these errors, a lot of people succumb to the we don't know anything school of economic growth. And it's typically people who are anti-market. They typically say, they usually say that, oh, um, industrial policy worked in Y country, typically South Korea. And they say it didn't work in this country, usually India or Nigeria. And they say, so we can't know what, what grows with, what, what causes economic growth. And so we should adopt my policy. Uh, my question to you is, do we know anything about what causes economic growth? I think that's a really complicated question because the way most people approach it is like, I don't want to say wrong, but it's sort of too simplistic. Mm-hmm. So if you say like, do we know which policies cause growth? That's like a question that people actually look into and say like, what does cause growth? And they mm-hmm. have no idea. Right. Like they they say like, well, market reforms sometimes work. Like in the most notable example is China. But they also like don't work and Latin America has had a lot of problems after the 90s. And then you say like, uh, well, and uh, import substitution and like pro, this sort of protectionist uh, policies worked in South Korea and in some Asian nations, but they didn't work very clearly in Latin America Mm -hmm. either. So I think you need to ask like, what kind of country, like, why the policies failed, what kind of and what kind of countries they failed in. Because I think that's something that's like the developing country right. umbrella uh, spectrum is like anywhere from like Haiti and Rwanda and like these really poor, stagnant, unstable countries where like mm-hmm. basically anything that that uh, where like basically all government spending will increase, will improve the economy because like everything is so bad. And I think that as you slide up like the income scale, uh, the quantity of, well, of government investment and Mm -hmm. the press and the growth of certain of industries, it starts being less relevant, like how much growth there is and how much investment there is and how pro- and productivity and well, efficiency and effectiveness start becoming more and more of a concern. Okay. So like a, a country that is like Bolivia might really benefit from really aggressive government spending, really generous uh, investment, mm-hmm. like somewhat protectionist policies that improve like conditions for all industries. Yeah. But then uh, the the costs of that of those policies and the inefficiency and like low productivity and uh, misallocation of resources and and whatever start becoming more and more serious as you like you you get through like the middle of developing country the upper middle like mm-hmm. the Latin America kind and that's where you can like sort of taper off because you don't solve those tensions. Yeah, so fair point. What you said about the word developing being used for both Haiti and Indonesia, for example, really struck me. It's a, it's a pet peeve of mine too. Um, my question to you is, I, my next question to you is, if I 
um, it's a, it's a, it might be a little insensitive asking this, but um, if I gave you, if I told you that you were the dictator of Argentina starting tomorrow, uh, how would you change economic policy? You you can pass through everything to parliament. You have no um, legal hurdle. Well, I think economic policy in Argentina has like a lot of problems, and they all like feed into the same problem. So you have a central bank that's not independent. Okay. And it's been independent for like two years of the past 20. <laughs> and you have like a, a very, you have like a very big government deficit and it's getting, and it's even bigger like in subnational entities. So in provinces and not so much municipalities, but the government takes in a lot of, of revenue. Mm-hmm. And it gives a lot of money to the provinces too. So like, I would have to, you would have to start with like fixing fiscal federalism because like it's a, it's like a really big destabilizing factor in public finance because I think the the economic problem is fundamentally that the government can't, uh, can't keep spending under control, can't like manage its own finances. So you have like a, so that means that, for example, taxes have to be really high. Like you need much higher taxes than you need. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, because like a lot of it slips out as tax evasion and tax avoidance. And that means that you have to like especially punish the people who are like following the rules. So, for example, you have taxes on like bank transfers and, the, and on companies that are like that have their entire workforce registered right. and have like all, all of their information up to date. And that means that like you're disin- disincentivizing doing mm-hmm. things the right way because mm-hmm. if you do things the right way, you pay like 125% of your of your income in taxes if you're a company, right? And if you like have, have all of your workers unregistered and like don't report half of your sales, then okay. you can like go your merry way around yeah and i think in, in taiwan they had a really nice innovation where they gave lottery tickets uh, with with each of the sales they with the, each of the sales receipts so everybody wanted a sales receipt so that and, and then so firms were, were forced to keep their accounting on the books i think the problem is that mo- most countries don't have the public trust required to implement a, a scheme like this and that it, it would never work outside of I don't know, Taiwan, Singapore, like five, maybe 10 other countries. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, well, I think that low trust in the government is obviously not separate from uh, the government's inability to, to keep the economy on track. Right. And, well, like you have, uh, well, this is across South America, but you have like a government that is really bad at handling some issues at like dealing with inequality dealing with poverty in Argentina dealing right. with inflation and unemployment so you have like a very sort of reluctance of people to work with the government and to expect things from the government mm-hmm. and so like because the government is so ba- is bad at doing the things it should then you can't really build the tools to make it better because they require like for example you have if you want to promote investment you need to promise companies that they that you want like 
you want to say, well, I'm going to raise tax, I'm going to lower some tax, I'm going to give incentives for investments. But then you also have to say like, it's not just that you're not going to like hit them with a stick. Mm. It's not just like you're giving them the card. You also have to promise them to not like pull out the sticks, the stick in five minutes and like bonk them over the head <laughs> for trusting you. And well, comp and companies and people have learned the bad way to not like to not trust that promise. Okay. So like the government says, I'm going to like borrow money exclusively to finance the deficit. I'm going to to do a fiscal reform program. And then like no one will trust that unless you're like really extreme with with how mm -hmm. big the cuts are and how big the tax increases are. Right. Because like if you if you aren't really serious with that, then people will think that you're just like going to do whatever you want. The second it's it starts being unpopular. Right, yeah. I mean I, I understand. I think one of the best responses I've read on monetary theory goes on the lines of you can only have X uh, discretionary policy only if people trusted the central bank enough and a gold standard or dollarization or anything of this extra tight money is 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 only because uh, is 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 only a good solution when you have low trust in the government but i feel that you making you dictator won't solve low trust in the argentine government so i'm going to scrap my plan to invade argentina and do that but um anyways what's your personal um, economic philosophy uh, do you think that economic philosophies should exist i think that's like a really i think that's a complicated question because well i don't know if economic philosophies should exist i think that they uh, well, the I think that I think of economics not not as a set of beliefs, so not like a set of methods and like yeah. tools to analyze uh, the things. So like I don't know, supply and demand, markets, mm -hmm. incentives, whatnot. So you look at them and you use them to understand uh, the reality. So I think that a philosophy of economics, like a way to to think about uh, economics would be a bit counterproductive if you say like, I think that uh, government is always bad. And like, you're sort of like this libertarian type because if you apply these these tools to a bunch of places like healthcare, education, housing, mm -hmm. then you, the environment, you can clearly see that, uh, that they, they fail, uh, mm -hmm. that no government results in failure. And then you can see like, too much government also results in failure. And sometimes like some weird places in between also fail because like you missed uh, a step or you missed like an important detail. Okay. But I also think that you need a, a philosophy of like what, which things are like beyond the scope of economics and which things aren't. Like if you say uh, we need to buy and sell organs, yeah. like you right. can't really tackle that question just with markets and incentives and externalities and right and that's because like you start getting into some really really dense things that you can't actually solve unless you make like really weird assumptions right. those are more of moral question than economic ones right it's should this thing yeah. be in the realm of markets rather than yeah, what yeah. should this market design be applied and and obviously like 
what should this thing be a market a market item you can say like housing shouldn't be a market housing should be like a a public a, a public item and like right. you can actually apply like the the tools to that question right but a lot of the questions that like an economic philosophy would would uh, would respond to aren't like hard uh, questions of economics like that like if you say uh, should the central bank prioritize inflation or employment mm -hmm. that's something that an economic philosophy would have to to respond and like it's not something that you can just sit down look at the data and say inflation is objectively more important more important than employment okay. because that gets you like this gigantic gap in in between potential and actual output in mm. the US, but you can't also say employment is more is objectively more important than inflation because that gets you like the 70s. Right. No, I, I, I completely understand that. And one of the more the biggest pet peeves I have with people who are ideological is that they focus is it is it it's, it's my it's my understanding that most human minds intuitively can't uh, optimize for multiple variables at the, at the same time. We, we, have, we have to use really complicated math to do that. And um, the answer is that intuitively, most people can't do that. So their heuristic becomes, I'm going to optimize for X. And if, and if X works out, everything else is going to be fine. And then to justify this uh, X theory, they make up weird, in, they make up weird um, facts and uh, uh, change the numbers. And that's what I feel drives most of uh, online discourse these days. I'm gonna ask question to you. Yeah. Is, yeah. Last question to you is: You're on Twitter. You're fairly popular. You're mentioned by Noah Smith, um, which is, I guess, that's not that's that's one high level of um, of um, famousness. How do you think Twitter has changed the rules of the game for um, people who aren't necessarily within the uh, who aren't or who, who don't have the connections? that those inside the field would? Well, I think that it's like a, mo a much more, uh, it made like economics a much more well, democratic and a much more accessible field because okay. like a lot of people tweet, uh, I'm going to like talk about economists a lot, but a lot of economists talk about, uh, about economics for other economists. Okay. And like normally you will just have to like believe whatever the hell Larry Summers or the Alan Greenspan or whoever you saw on the news what mm. or, 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 or Paul Krugman was saying <laughs> and now like you can just like reply to one of their tweets and say like hey Paul you say thing X what do you mean Paul Krugman and Larry Summers precisely right for like mainstream uh, audiences to like regular people so it also incentivizes like economics communication. It also incentivizes like blogging and substacks mm -hmm. and YouTube videos. I don't know because like you can you can sort of aim at the like moderately informed about economics, but not dedicated economists audience, and you can also aim at the like normal people audience, mm -hmm. and that made like discussion much more democratic and much more accessible and much more open so like these debates that will happen like behind closed doors about like mm. should inflation or, or employment be more important to the federal reserve 
that's something that like you will get a symposium and you will get like right. five white guys in bow ties like talking <laughs> about like with scientists with us a uh, very low quality slideshow right. that's just like all equations and now yeah. you'll get like people all over the world and people from all over the discipline and people from like not that would normally not uh, give their opinion on this just like reply to the first guy and say like i think you got this wrong and i think you, you should consider this and that's like builds very constructively i also think it it, le it leads to like very it can lead to very like bad ideas or ideas that are like really uh, undercooked to, mm -hmm. to be somehow that that, that don't, aren't quite finished uh, to, uh, out there in yeah. a way that like for a professional economy economics audience it wouldn't be like a, a really important thing to say but for a regular audience it might like blow their minds mm -hmm. So, for example, you have like this debate over what caused the great, the big inflation of the 70s. Okay. And for example, one of the, the theories is like that there was this regulation that made like keeping money in banks really unattractive. And like it in the, in the 60s, you started losing money. Mm -hmm. And in the 70s, it's just like killed your, like you started losing money, potential money. Okay. The, the opportunity cost of a bank deposit was high because the interest rates were higher than the top than the cap they had, mm -hmm. and then like in the seventies, it was just like below inflation, so you would lose money if you keep it in the bank. Right, and I think that like if you if you're an economist, you can like sort of graph that onto like the big uh, their monetary policy was really bad and. And people didn't trust the Federal Reserve to like keep everyone in check. So you also have like the Federal Reserve just deciding that people would would lose money to inflation if they kept it in the mm -hmm. bank. And that added to the problem. But if you like see it outside and like don't have a lot of the tools to, to discuss this issue, it would seem like that the mainstream story is just false and wrong. And that everyone is ignoring this this thing. Yeah, um, it's been great talking with you. I really liked it, and you among the most unique views of people I know, and I and I value that a lot. So, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, uh, yes, you're welcome. I'm. I really enjoyed it. I think it was like a really interesting thing and something I don't really do. Well, I don't do it often for evident reasons, but but I think that as a new thing, it's it was really useful and interesting. Okay.